Welcome to the Growing Rural Podcast, where we focus on all things rural in South Carolina. We will discuss topics on healthcare, economy, education, and the unique culture that is our rural state. This podcast is supported by the South Carolina Center for Rural and Primary Healthcare. Please join us for today's topic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Growing Rural Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Bennett. Our guest today is Mandy Powers Norell. She's a lawyer, former legislator, and lieutenant governor candidate from Lancaster, South Carolina. Welcome, Mandy. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, I guess where you grew up and your journey to being who you are today. Okay, thank you. Well, I grew up in Lancaster. Um, both my parents are from Lancaster and their parents are from Lancaster. And uh, we go back many, many generations and hundreds of years in Lancaster. Hmm. And I mean, so much so that I there's no way I could have married somebody from Lancaster because, you know, I, a lot of them were my cousins. Right, right. <laughs> and so, um, so I, um, my dad's people were sharecroppers and my mom's people were farmers. Hmm. And then the, uh, then the mill came to town and that was Springs Mills. And for a long time, we had the world's largest cotton mill hmm. in Lancaster. So growing up for me, I, every family I knew was dependent on the mill. Right. Uh, both of my parents worked for the mill and all of my friends had at least one parent working for the mill. And so, um, I was first in my family to go to college, mm. and I was able to pay for that myself with um, by working at the mill mm. myself. Because you know, in Lancaster, you could always get a job right. at, at right. least at that time. You know, because the mill was always hiring. So I worked in the screen printing plant at Grace Bleachery, and uh, was able to pay for college. The mill taught me a lot about just life. Mm-hmm. It taught me, you know, how you treat people who are depending on you, and uh, the value of hard work and how great it feels at night, you know, to go to sleep when you have just physically exhausted yourself and you feel like you earned that sleep. And, um, but it mainly taught me to take advantage of all the opportunities that came my way because I was working with people who hadn't had these opportunities or hadn't taken advantage of the opportunities they had and they regretted it, but Mm -hmm. they almost saw it as like a mission to come by my station at screen print at the mill and, and remind me, you've got a chance to go to college. You've Mm -hmm. got a chance to do a lot of great things. Don't let any opportunities pass you by. And that changed my entire perspective in college. So I worked super hard, much harder than I had in high school uh, because of of that perspective that they loaned to me. Mm-hmm. And and so I got a scholarship to law school hmm. and um, I married my husband and brought him home to Lancaster and made him think it was his idea. Right, right. And, um, and so I, I worked really hard in law school and I finished uh, in two and a half years and I was second in my December graduating class, but I wanted to come home to Lancaster mm. and practice law and, uh, and practice with my husband. And then um, about that time, the mill started to close mm-hmm. and I ended up doing bankruptcy work mm-hmm. and, uh, and filing a lot of bankruptcies for the people that I used to work with right. at the mill. And, uh, and that is a, it's, kind of a it's a really horrible full circle kind of way to um to experience that but it's um and so since then my husband and i have been practicing law together that's been since um 1998 and 
And I also have been um, was city attorney for the city of Lancaster from right after I got out of law school hmm. uh, until I got elected to the House of Representatives, and that was uh, that gave me sort of the perspective of you know how people are hurting from the mm-hmm. bankruptcy side of things that I was seeing, and then how government really kind of wasn't fulfilling the needs of everyday people because of a, a disconnect right. there. So I ran for, first I ran for Senate in 2008. And I ran for Senate because um, the only person running for an open seat that year was Mick Mulvaney. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't like him. And I just <laughs> didn't think that he would be a good senator mm-hmm. and and mainly it was his um perspectives on public education mm-hmm. and um and wanting to take money from uh, public education and give it to um to parents to send their children to private academies that cater to the wealthy and uh we called it vouchers and right. i was just an anti-voucher person and he was a pro-voucher person and i could not find a soul to run against him mm-hmm. and so after a while i just said well I'll do it. You know, it was gerrymandered for a Republican, and I'm a Democrat, and I was probably going to lose, but I just said he's not going to have a coronation, Mm -hmm. and he's going to know he was in a fight, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to bring up the issues that I think need to be represented that won't get brought up if he doesn't have anybody running against him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ran that race and came a lot closer than anybody thought that I would uh, in, in such a red district. So four years later, when the House seat came out, open i had won every precinct that overlapped the house and senate um, seats and so it it was sort of a natural kind of fit for me to run for the house seat and uh and i won that one and that that's been a pretty you know red district too but i was able to um to be successful and win that one for uh, several terms, I think because of my roots in the area, mm-hmm. because of all the cousins I have <laughs> who were willing to split their tickets right. and and vote for me, and um, and just you know, I think because I knew the people and having uh, having grown up there. And I'm curious about kind of backing up to what you were saying about the people at the mill encouraging you to take advantage. I'm assuming most of those folks didn't go to college. No, a lot of them hadn't finished high school. Like my dad right. didn't finish high school. He joined the Navy at 17. And uh, and when he got out of the Navy, he came home to, to work at the mill. You didn't, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't have to have finished right. high school to work at the mill. Because work was different back then, I mm-hmm. guess you could say. So yes. with the closure of the mill, a lot of those opportunities went away. With that changing economy and changing, you know, that I know that's the story of rural South Carolina in a lot of ways, how that the closure of mills and clothing and all those kinds of things have really decimated it. Yes. How has it changed since then? What how has it grown? What opportunities have arisen? Well, we were so dependent. Lancaster County was Mm -hmm. so dependent on the mill. We had put all of our eggs in one basket. And, and that is that was a huge lesson that we learned. You know, there were a lot of communities in South Carolina that had a mill that a lot of people worked at, but they also had a whole lot of other industry, mm-hmm. too. In Lancaster, we had the mill. Right. And then the next largest employer was the county, and the next largest was the hospital. But right. it was the mill. And so we were particularly devastated. And, you know, I told my husband at one point, I said, I think I filed a bankruptcy for everybody in Lancaster County. <laughs> and and every time I think that there's, I'm going to have to move, there's nobody else for me to file a uh, bankruptcy case for, you know, they, they would just keep coming. Right. I go to Walmart and probably see 10 people. Mm. I filed a bankruptcy. 
bankruptcy for because we were so overly dependent on this one industry and when it collapsed and the the skills from it didn't translate into anything else and and we hadn't recruited other industry at that point right it was it was really devastating so how has it recovered since then we have um as a county we're fortunate that we're right up against charlotte north Mm -hmm. carolina uh we've been able to join the i-77 alliance and start recruiting some industry smaller industry which is good because you can diversify and you're not overly reliant on one right uh but it has been it's been a serious struggle sure uh the majority of the development is in the northern part that's that's uh touches charlotte Charlotte. a lot of it is residential because our property taxes our residential property taxes are so low in South Carolina mm-hmm. that's not necessarily a, um, a good thing for us as a county developmentally because you have all these people who live in Lancaster County but live their lives and pay their taxes or you know um, sales taxes and all that in North Carolina right, right. and and so there was one point where a study was done and for every dollar in tax revenue that we got from residential we were spending like a dollar and 10 cents in services mm-hmm. so it like was police a, um, fire right, right until the um, until the retail and and industrial started to um, to be recruited and catch up, catch we, up right. we had a, a particularly hard struggle. Kind of circling back to the educational piece then, have has Lancaster adapted their educational offerings to try to fill that gap between skills? We have partnered within the I-77 Alliance. We've partnered with um, York County and uh, and Fairfield County, and we have some skills training mm-hmm. that uh, is available through York Tech and, and things like that. When, when the mill first closed, there was a lot of retraining opportunities, but they really didn't fit in a great way mm-hmm. with, um, with the, the needs that were that were coming on board so there were just a lot of people who were unemployed for an extended period of time talking about your time in the legislature you talked a lot about trying to represent your community filling the gaps uh bringing up issues that otherwise wouldn't have been heard can you give us an example of some of those issues that you think you were uniquely able to provide being a representative from a rural area well i don't know if it's unique to being from a rural area but the the things that i really tried to focus on a lot are the um the areas where bills are introduced that don't have lobbyists in the lobby trying to push them forward because if there's an entity that has a financial stake in something then they're able to hire the um the lobbyists to do their communications and to uh, to wield a lot of influence Mm -hmm. to uh to get those bills through um sexual assault bills and um and child abuse bills and things like that there's there are no lobbyists for that i mean there's nobody on the other side of it there's no there are no lobbyists for sexual predators either but those bills just languish and so um and for a long time they just weren't being introduced Mm -hmm. uh and i think that a lot of that has to do with like the the low numbers of women in the legislature because Mm -hmm. and it's not you know nothing against men but you know women have to think about different things we know that we can be physically overpowered more easily we can't leave our drinks unattended we can't walk alone at night and just these things that are always just sort of running in the background of our minds so just a different perspective that you bring just by being at the table and that's why we need diversity in um in leadership so that everybody's perspective is is represented and so those were the things that that i tried to focus on my first bill 
I got passed was um, one that I realized was needed um, because of just people in the community talking to me about the need for um, for children in school to know that they can uh, report sexual abuse to their teachers or guidance counselors because mm-hmm. these people had always been mandated reporters, right. but the kids in school didn't know that mm-hmm. and adult survivors of child sexual assault would say school was the only place i felt safe but i didn't know i report. could tell my teacher what was happening to me and sure. and she could help make it stop right and so i introduced aaron's law which um educated children at every single grade level in an age-appropriate way how to recognize and report child sexual abuse because a lot of these little kids they don't know it's not normal you know what happens in your home is what's normal to you and that's the definition of normal and so um so we've been able to get hundreds of predators out of children's lives through Aaron's law. So that's probably that's you know I I can't imagine ever having introduced another piece of legislation that would have had a greater impact mm-hmm. that I was more proud of right. than that. But it's an area that a lot of you know legislators in the past had ignored or not it had just hadn't been on their radars. Sure. And um and then last year we were able to um to outlaw child marriage mm. up until last year uh parents could sign their children over into marriage at any age or their daughters into marriage as right. long as the daughter was pregnant. Right. And so she could be 12 years old and be signed into marriage by her parents and and the father could be 60. Right. And so um that's we got we got that changed last right. year too so. in 2020 and that and that i think maybe is more um a, a rural issue i know my grandmother married at 13 because you know she was in a farming family and it was right. just what you did right and so yeah yeah and it's interesting how those lingering things stay around even you know it's 2020 most people wouldn't think that that's an issue but right. clearly it still is it still happens and yes most definitely you know, you'd mentioned the school voucher issue. I know that's a big one for rural because they don't have the diversity of yes. uh, funding and, you know, some funding leaving their school would be a big loss. That's so true. You know, when I was running for lieutenant governor, these um, schools, you know, all over the state would ask me to come and or invite me to come and tour the school and speak to students. And I loved doing that. But it would make me incredibly sad because I knew the schools that my children were going to with the um, the problems with the buildings and mm-hmm. just the outdated equipment and all this. And then I'm touring schools that look like not just college campuses, but like private college campuses, right, right. really nice. And they and the thing that would that I always would notice is they had carpet. Like, mm. this is really nice when you have, you know, nice furniture and carpet and sofas and things like that that mm-hmm. I could not imagine seeing at a Lancaster County public school. And right. and the kids would say, well, I, and I get violin lessons. And they, they had so many opportunities that we just didn't have in the, uh, in the more rural public right. schools that I was accustomed to. Sure. So what do you think we can do to help elevate our rural school districts oh my gosh nationally the way <laughs> right. we fund schools is completely upside down mm-hmm. and i mean i think that needs a a national solution but mm-hmm. we definitely need a solution for it in south carolina you know it with with school funding being based primarily on property tax sure then you know the poorest areas get the least amount of funding right. and that 
makes no sense to me and it makes no sense to anybody who really i think thinks about it mm-hmm. you know the poorest schools need more funding they right. need more attention they have issues that um that go far beyond academics mm-hmm. that that they need to address All you know the if social the issues hungry environmental issues right, right. you right. you can't you can't get to the point of teaching somebody math if if their stomach's growling right yeah and that's you know with the Supreme Court decision here in the state for the mm-hmm. as a minimally adequate is the the key phrase that's still yes. under debate. Yes, and that's um and I, and I almost feel like the Supreme Court put that in there to shock us mm-hmm. to say hey this is what you've done you've created a situation where you you demand a minimally adequate education and yet it hasn't shocked us enough to do right. something about it. Right. Yeah, and I, I think a key point there is equality of opportunity. As you yes. say, if you if you tour the school district, and my my kids are in a very fortunate school district, and again, their high school looks like a private college, and I keep telling them that, and um, mm-hmm. the the equality of opportunity is not there yet. Right, and That's we so could have true. extremely talented kids in poor districts who don't get that opportunity, and yes. just it's that poverty trap, that cycle of poverty. Mm-hmm. That's okay. so true. Yeah, what else can we do at a state level? to help elevate our rural communities? Um, I know that y'all focus a lot on health care mm-hmm. here. And just knowing that there are so many rural communities in South Carolina that don't have an OBGYN, right. that don't have a hospital, that you know, finding out that if you go into labor in like one county, and I, I think maybe Bamberg, I, I want to use that as an example because I don't think they have a hospital in Bamberg County, right, they that don't. you can't have a baby in that county unless right. you're having the baby in the car right. on the way to another hospital. Well, they do and, have a freestanding ED now. Which okay. Is, which is helpful. That is good. So you could triage at least. But yeah, they right. do have to go out of their county to deliver but in like a I, maternity ward. When I go into labor, I've had two babies. My my first one was born in 30 minutes and the second one was born an hour and a half. And that's a... Um, that travel time I is, would have had, right, yeah. I would have had a baby in the car mm-hmm. if, um, if I were in a county without a, a hospital or an OBGYN. And so that's, it's a pretty scary thing. And when we look at our um, maternal mortality, in South mm-hmm. Carolina, you know, we're pretty high up there on the list. Right. And, and a lot of that. Especially for women of color. Right, right. Right. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that we're allowing rural hospitals to close because mm-hmm. we have um, refused uh, Medicaid expansion and they've lost their disproportionate share money so that they can't stay open. Right. And so that's, um, there's so many, um, there's such a, a domino effect to policy decisions like that. Yeah, and a shameless plug on our website, you can find a data dashboard where mm-hmm. we have OBGYNs and how far you are from them. Oh, um, wow. OB units, how far you are from them travel time-wise. And there's it's an alarming portion of the state that is not covered by an OBGYN within 30 minutes, for example. Oh, wow. So you have women traveling 45 minutes to 60 minutes for just prenatal care. Mm-hmm. And that is a barrier that leads to poorer outcomes. And, it does, it yeah. does. Um, what do you think we could do healthcare or otherwise to help our rural communities recover because they've been really hard hit by this. Oh gosh, you know, it, it amazes me when I look at the stock market and see the num the Dow and the S&P 500 ticking up and compare that to what I'm seeing in my bankruptcy practice and in my right. community and it they it just doesn't compute that the how in the world could the economy as a whole be getting better when our people are suffering in such a huge huge way and and right. a lot of um women are losing their jobs um in in a very 
you know, very much disproportionately to men because right. of the uh, COVID pandemic and, you know, having to stay home and homeschool and yeah. and uh, and take care of children. The latest and, jobs report, I don't know if you saw that, but yes. 140,000 jobs were lost in December and they were all women. They were all women. And that, you know, men actually had a, an increase and Which, they were, it's just, that's astounding when you think about it that way. That is, and that's set us back so mm-hmm. far. And it's um, it it is scary, and I I don't have the answers for how we recover from this. I think that um, I think that one of the things we need to do is do better about the vaccine rollout. Mm-hmm. And you know, I hear so many people saying, "Well, we can't do phase one B until everybody in phase one A gets vaccinated." And I'm like, "Have you have you ever boarded an airplane?" <laughs> they, they 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 say everybody right. in zone one. And now zones one and two. So if you're in zone one and you didn't get in, then still the they're not going to hold up the rest right, of the airplane right. for the people in first class to all get on board. They have the opportunity and then they can join the next group. Right. And so um, it just it seems to me that we could be getting this done a whole lot faster. We're number, um, according to the New York Times yesterday, we're number like 48 out of 53 um, at states and territories that mm-hmm. in terms of of getting vaccines in arms um and that is that's very very frustrating but i also know that you know having just run in a rural district there are a lot of people in my district who swear they will never take the vaccine Mm -hmm. and because they don't they don't trust it they don't uh, they don't believe that or they they believe that it's a government conspiracy or they believe that there's some tracking mechanism in it or that right. it will harm them in some way right and so i think we'll definitely have a um a challenge in recovering from the pandemic just from the um the fears right and that from what i've read that is not solely a rural issue either yeah we're seeing that in urban areas even rural systems where healthcare providers are reluctant to get it Mm-hmm. I've seen that too. Yeah, forty to fifty percent, or only, you know, I've seen numbers like that, which is astounding to me. But that's oh, wow. that's where we're at. And you know, how do you require? Do you require? Those, those are big ethical issues that mm-hmm. we're facing now, and these are all new concepts we'd never really had to cross before until exactly. this popped up. So, thinking about as we emerge from this, theoretically, let's let's fast forward six months, and cases are down, and we're starting to emerge, yes. and things are opening back up what what do you see as opportunities especially in your area i know i it, a renaissance mm-hmm. um that's um one of the things that one of the good things that this pandemic has shown us is that you don't have to live in a city to work in a city correct right. and i've got um friends who've been living in manhattan who are from lancaster and who say you know i might want to come back and mm-hmm. live in an area where i have acreage and animals and that kind of thing and um, and they can do that because we've we've suddenly become accustomed to, um, to meeting each work. other over Zoom, right. and and it really doesn't matter where you are. I'm right. really fascinated with these uh, digital nomads who mm-hmm. are conducting their business from anywhere in the world, and and they can travel anywhere and stay in a place that really doesn't cost near as much as right. the the places that uh, that traditionally have the the important jobs. One of the great things that I'm experiencing as a lawyer who primarily practices in federal court in Columbia is 
I can do my hearings from Lancaster, from right. the beach, from the mountains. You don't now. have to drive to Columbia anymore. I don't Columbia have to drive, yeah. and that that significantly cut down on my productivity when I was having to spend a three hour round trip uh, mm-hmm. car ride to do a um, a hearing that might last ten minutes. Plus, all the time for getting ready and all right. that, I can do right. these hearings in my pajamas because they're on the right. phone. Right, exactly. and so we can just we can get a lot more done in rural areas that we couldn't get done before because we had to travel mm-hmm. to the urban areas. Yeah, because everything so was so that's, distant. Right. That's a great opportunity. I have loved the convenience of mm-hmm. that. I don't want to go back to the having to do the in-person hearings and For all the everything. traveling. Right. It, it will be interesting because, as I think everybody should know, broadband is an issue in rural. The availability is low. Yes. Even cell phone coverage is not universal. Even in our state, there's dead zones all over the state. Yes. Um, and we're not that big of a state. You think about that happening out west. Oh, I know. Um, but, you know, I've driven through many areas of our state where the cell phone drops out. Oh, um, yeah. So how do we get these communities up for being able to do a Zoom call? If you don't have, if you have dial-up, you can't do a Zoom call. No, If you I have know. satellite, you can't do a Zoom call. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we have known as a legislature has mm-hmm. been a problem for years. Uh, I had on my subcommittee in legislative oversight, we had the um, Rural Infrastructure Authority come before us and we asked them, you know, what's it gonna take to get broadband? And they let us know that the uh, co-ops were working on it. And, you know, basically this is like electricity of 75 years ago. Right. That every it, It's that important and it's becoming that, that necessary in people's lives. Uh, but it's it's one of these things that is so typical of, I think, politics in general. And I know politics in South Carolina. We only respond to immediate threats. Right. You know, you have right. to have the, the tiger chasing you up a tree before you're going to climb the tree. Right. And so it's um, responding to that immediate threat. But we're, um, it takes a long time to get this fiber in the ground. Yep, and it takes a long time to respond. And, and for children in schools, every year is so important. Mm-hmm. And we've lost a lot of kids in the system because they, for many of them, because they can't you know, log on. They don't right. have they don't have it that home. ability. Right. right. And so we're going to, we're, when this is over, we're going to face, I think, a significant crisis in catching these kids up. Mm-hmm. If we don't catch them up, then that just further expands the achievement gap sure. in in our schools. And and that, I think, is going to be one of the big challenges coming out of the pandemic. Have you heard folks, especially policy circles, talking about Internet as a utility as opposed to just a business offering? Because I yes. think that's a major hurdle, especially for rural. There's not a... A, a, a business case for it in a lot of ways, right? Right, right. And so that's something that the co-ops, you know, are talking about. The um, there was a major budget allocation at the end. It was uh, you know, March 11th was the day when everything <laughs> just kind of fell apart, right, and right. and the pandemic was became real to a lot of people. That coincidentally was the last day that the House met in regular session because mm. we were taking a. Um, a uh, sabbatical for a week or two weeks after that because we were just finishing the budget and we got that through on the last day of the budget was a major broadband allocation in the uh, in the house budget mm-hmm. last year so that's uh that's good that we got the money in there and i think there have been major federal allocations since then but it's going to take a you know a long time right yeah gonna take some pointed investment to get that yes. done yes and and um and that 
that those funds were going to uh, co-ops mm-hmm. to uh, to institute broadband as as a utility. Right. And it's going to be interesting. I don't know if you, you, you I don't know how much you keep up with federal register notices. That's Not the, a lot. That's the, that's the longer <laughs> side of me coming out. But uh, there was a rural broadband auction that happened probably December-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Tesla, Starlink, bought a good portion of that because they're putting the microsatellites up for fast broadband internet. So those are emerging things that we should keep an eye out for. That's because, exciting. Yeah. They bought some portions here in South Carolina, too, to hopefully maybe that is a way to to generate some broadband connectivity that would be phenomenal which would be an interesting outcome of tesla and spacex and all those kind of technologies so here we're recording here it is it's actually january 11th i had to check i think it's a monday every day is the same anymore as you said <laughs> know, working right? from home so often um but i think i'd be remiss not to bring up all the events that happened at the capitol last week the the violence and the uh insurrection coup whatever language you want to use Mm -hmm. around it it was a it was a a dark day for our history i think and i you know i'm interested in your perspective as you know being serving in the legislature what what went through your mind when you were watching those events unfold you know i i think everybody when they look look at something like that they they apply sort of an overlay of their own experience Mm -hmm. to it and and i did and i thought I can't imagine this happening at the South Carolina State House. Uh, you know, we're a very scaled down version, but sure. we have Capitol Police and we have the Sergeant of the House and the mm-hmm. Sergeant of the Senate. And I always felt extremely safe mm-hmm. there. Uh, we had uh, angry people. We had threats. Sure. I had um, uh, nails in my driveway one morning when we were taking down the Confederate flag because uh, somebody didn't want me to be able to drive to Columbia to vote on the uh, removal of the flag. Uh, had the white supremacists got after me one time because they didn't like a tweet that I had done, so I was getting threats there. And every time I was threatened, mm-hmm. the um, the people who threatened me either got a visit from SLED or, you know, there was all, I always felt protected mm-hmm. by um, our Capitol Police and our sergeants, and they always made me feel safe. I cannot imagine how unsafe lawmakers felt in that building that day because people hate lawmakers. Sure. They hate politicians, yeah. and there are some people who will take it to the farthest extreme, want to kill them, want to kidnap them and torture them and do horrible things. Mm-hmm. And and we know those people are out there, but we know that we have those layers of protection of Capitol Police and sergeants when they're in uh, the chamber assembled. And to know that people were getting through and not going through security. I mean, when I go to bankruptcy court, I have to take off my shoes and my bracelet and my sunglasses and run everything I have through the scanners and go through a metal detector. And then as I'm getting dressed, they tell me if I passed. These are people who were able to take whatever they had with them in their backpacks and everything right into the Capitol and into the chambers. And it's such a terrifying thing mm-hmm. you know what if that had been a you know foreign government coming to to invade right. it and 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 it may as well have been right because they were they were seeking to do harm as well and so right. i just um i can't imagine what they would have done to a member of congress had they found them uh seeing what they did to the police officer that they killed and mm-hmm. uh and killed you know stabbed him with an american flag yeah. even it's just a uh 
it's it is scary and horrendous and the long-term fear that I have is it's going to make good people not want to run sure. for office yeah. because we can't leave politics to um, to the dirty people and to the people who want it to create uh, havoc. Mm-hmm. But those are the kinds of people that will be attracted to what happened sure. uh, last week and and good people who just want to live their lives and, and do good things are going to think twice mm-hmm. about putting themselves in the arena and running for office. And I right. think long term, that to me, that's that's the most worrisome part of it all. Right. And I'm curious, you know, you've you said about threats that you've received. Do you feel like you bore a larger brunt of that being female? I did get some that were specifically female. You know, I think that we we all got the hate. Sure. And but there were there was some very specific hate that could not have been directed at a man sure. that yeah. was directed at me. And so um so like when you're a woman who is in politics, people who disagree with you or when you're anyone in politics, people who disagree with you might say you're horrible and you should die. Right. And when you're a woman in politics, they'll say, you're horrible, you should be raped, and you should die. Mm-hmm. And they always add in that this extra, extra layer. layer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So what other legislative, I guess, issues or topics did you tackle that you feel made a good impact? Well, one of them that came up last year was after um, Ahmad Arbery was killed by citizens who um, who found him in their neighborhood after he had just been sort of looking at a at a house that mm-hmm. was under construction. They um, they felt em- empowered to um, arrest him through the citizens' arrest laws in Georgia, uh, and then ultimately they killed him. Yeah. And in South Carolina, our citizens' arrest laws actually provide for the use of deadly force and in, uh, in conducting a citizen's arrest. And that's, um, I introduced a bill immediately after that to at least take the deadly force provision out of our citizen's arrest laws, because right. that's not something that, that I think even makes sense for, um, for today's um, society to, to allow citizens to use deadly force in, sure. in making a citizen's arrest. And did that bill pass? No, it didn't. And yeah. well, a lot of bills that might have otherwise had a chance to pass uh, didn't because uh, they were interrupted by COVID mm-hmm. and the need to uh, to shut down. Sure. But a lot of uh, a lot of bills that don't have a, uh, a a lobbyist specifically pushing them are just not going just to not pass. Gonna, yeah. So. You mentioned earlier, and I love this phrase, a rural renaissance. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to have to steal that and apply okay, it to good. my work going forward. But, um, and we, you know, we talk a lot about challenges and shortcomings in rural area, but tell us, what do you love about rural, living in rural, working in rural, serving, representing rural? I, um, you know, because I live in my hometown where I grew up, and, and, um, and so my kids love to see just the joy that I get from, you know, the other day I was coming home and they were um, repairing um, a water line in our street and they had the, the street closed off and and one of the guys repairing the line was Jackie Tinsley who I'd gone to all through elementary school with. Mm-hmm. And so I rolled down the window and I was he was like, hey Mandy! Yeah. And I'm, hey Jackie! And yeah. I get I love seeing the people that I've known forever 
uh, when I was running for house the first time and I would knock on all these doors of people I didn't know who they were uh, they would say I worked with your mom and your daddy mm-hmm. and yeah. it's there's such a, a happy cohesion there a of, community you know, of being in a place where yeah where you you feel a connection and even people who move into Lancaster, mm-hmm. having lived somewhere else, they make those connections very, very quickly so that somebody will say, oh, I'm friends with Brent who you saw Thursday night and he came and talked about you and all this and it's some, um, and then suddenly you have not just that person, but their network and their family and, and all that because mm-hmm. it's, uh, I think the rural areas, you're more likely to have folks with their large families there mm-hmm. and their cousins and aunts and uncles. Yeah, and, the intergenerational. Right, yeah. and you can have just a, um, a a great circle very, very quickly of people who will support you through the hard times mm-hmm. and, and be there for you. When we talk about rural, a lot of different things come up with different people's minds. I'm curious, when you hear rural, what? how would you tell somebody what rural is? How would you define it? I struggle right. with what rural means because I, I even questioned myself, do I live in a rural area? Did I grow up in a rural area? I mean, mm-hmm. I had I had goats, so you know, maybe that means right. I grew up in a rural area, but I, um, I, I guess I did then but then i moved into town in mm-hmm. lancaster and mm-hmm. i you know and i i live on market street and so i wonder do i live in a rural area now where i live you know 3 miles into town right. as opposed to growing up in the country and um it's it's something even when um when Jamie Harrison was running for Senate mm-hmm. and he started his rural initiative, I uh, I contacted his campaign and said, I'm worried about the use of this word because it, it makes me think of like my bankruptcy clients. Mm-hmm. I can't, if I say, if I characterize their situation in a certain way, it, it will, you know, upset or offend them. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I know they're insolvent, because they're coming to see me about bankruptcy. That's right. that's the definition of insolvency. But using that term is it carries with it a lot of a lot of weight. Right. That so I avoid it. And and in the same way I in in campaigning had avoided the term rural because it conjures up thoughts of people being characterized or at least within their own minds, you know, thinking, I don't want to be characterized mm-hmm. as uneducated or as um a country bumpkin or right, you know right. something All those like negative connotations that, right, right. Yeah. and so that's um that's something that i i myself struggle with you know having a real understanding of what the the group think is mm-hmm. uh, around the term rural mm-hmm. and so i have i have embraced it because I need a shorthand way to right. talk about the the parts of south carolina that are not urban mm-hmm. and when we look at the census you know right. it's the um, the places with denser populations that are growing and the place and the what the rural areas that are shrinking right. and while south carolina as a whole is growing at like one percent a year so i use it as the shorthand version to yeah. talk about the areas with less dense population yeah and I, and I think that's the unfortunate aspect of it i know the feds tend to use their rural definition is anything that's not urban. Right. So it's, it's a definition by lack, not a definition by what it actually is. And, yes. And that's yeah. one big reason why we're doing this podcast. We're trying to highlight what rural actually is and <laughs> yes. all the great things that are happening there and all the wonderful people that are there and representing it. I think that's great. Yeah. 
So thanks for joining us. This is a great conversation and appreciated having you on here. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. So for more information on our guest today uh, and all, and just everything else that we talked about, check the show notes. We'll have links in there for certain things. And stay tuned for more episodes coming out soon. If you've liked what you heard, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating. Five stars would be preferable. Um, one stars, just don't worry about it. Um, and if you have any ideas for anybody else you'd like to hear on the show, please reach out and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. So that's all for today. Thanks for listening to the Growing Rural Podcast. If you found the content valuable, please leave a rating on iTunes or Spotify so others can find us. For more information, please visit our website at sc.edu forward slash rural healthcare or follow us on Twitter at sc underscore crph. This was recorded at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Columbia. It is edited and produced by Sean Riffle. Y'all take care.